Coming up on Tech Nation, our former correspondent, David Ewing Duncan. He has a new book out, and he returns to tell us about talking to robots, tales from our human-robot future. Then, Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent, Dr. Daniel Kraft, tells us about how robots and artificial intelligence are replacing surgeons. Not if, but how. And Tech Nation regular contributor Gary Davis expands on those massive thefts of online credentials, accounts, and passwords. There are collections for sale out there on the dark web. Yes, he explains that too. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2017, I spoke with Daniel Levitin, the author of A Field Guide to Lies. I asked him, in this information age, we now have big data. We've got big data analytics. Do we also have big lies? Well, I guess we do. Um, people are getting away with bigger and bigger lies, it seems. And there, I think what I'm mostly interested in is that there's more and more false information than ever before. That um, misinformation and pseudoscience seem to be proliferating like there's no tomorrow. And I think the problem with that is that misinformation is promiscuous. It just ends up in all different kinds of places. You don't know where it's been. You don't know where it's going. Don't or touch who, it. <laughs> exactly. And you don't know who it's going to be with next. <laughs> exactly. You know, I, I wrote this book as a very practical guide. There's not any theory in there, nothing about what the brain's doing when this goes on. It's just these are the steps to follow. If you're above the age of 12 or so, and you want to know how to make sense out of things. It's it's what we would classically call critical thinking uh, that most of us haven't been trained to do. Uh, lawyers, scientists, journalists are trained to do it. But the rest of us are often left at the mercy of people who are really good at spinning a story or taking advantage of us. Elementary school arithmetic. Add up all the percentages on the pie chart. They're supposed to equal 100. Fox News got it wrong in your example. Yeah, they published this pie chart of who was supporting whom in uh, the uh, Romney presidential election. And you look at the numbers, and they add up to way more than 100%. Now, I can imagine how that happened. It might be they asked people in a poll, who do you support? And people were allowed to give more than one name. But then don't make a pie chart. <laughs> There's a problem with averages, isn't there? An average is a distortion of reality because you're taking a whole bunch of data points, anywhere from a few to dozens to millions, and you're trying to summarize them with a single number, right? It, it, you know, that can be useful, but it can also lead to a distortion. I think people need to know the next time you see an average, ask yourself, um, is it reasonable to take an average of this thing? Or could it be that we're combining apples and oranges or testicles and ovaries in this case, right? I mean, yes, on average, humans have one testicle, but that's that's not really a well-formed way to summarize the human race. In a real sense, even with the simple statistics, one of the things you're asking is, first of all, look at the data. What is the data that they're looking at? And what kinds of things about that data are important to see? 
Exactly. And I, I mean, there, there are some fundamental things you can ask, such as, are we comparing apples and oranges? Is it a, a fair comparison? Especially when we're dealing with averages. Just to take another example, suppose you're a salesperson uh, or you know, you're a real estate agent or you're, um, you're a stockbroker and you hear that there's a room over here. And in that room, the average uh, wealth of people in the room is $5 billion each. Now you're thinking, oh, I got to get in there. But what if the room has <laughs> My peeps to sell things to? <laughs> right. What if the room has Warren Buffett and 19 homeless people? Not all homeless people are poor, of course. Again, you don't want to make any assumptions or jump to conclusions. But let's say that this particular group of 19 homeless people have a net worth of zero, and you got Warren Buffett, who knows what his net worth is. The average wealth in that room is very high, but. I'm not sure that's a meaningful summary. You're comparing two different groups. It'd be like telling me the average height of a room full of NBA players and five-year-olds. This 2017 Tech Nation interview features Daniel Levitin, the author of A Field Guide to Lies, Critical Thinking in the Information Age. A neuroscientist, musician, and record producer, you might also remember him from one of his earlier books, including This Is Your Brain on Music, The Science of a Human Obsession. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, I speak with David Ewing Duncan. You know him well as a regular biotech contributor for Tech Nation. He's back today with a new book, Talking to Robots, Tales from Our Human-Robot Future. Then Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft tells us about how surgical robots and artificial intelligence are here today, and there'll be more in the future. And regular contributor Gary Davis talks about those thefts of online credentials, massive files filled with account names and passwords, and you can buy them if you'd like on the dark web. David Ewing Duncan. Well, David, welcome back to Tech Nation. Hi, it's great to be back. Your old home. I, I know. love it. I, I love you, it. Maura. We miss you. And I'm glad you came here because with your new book, after all, I am a robotics engineer. There you go. There That's you why I came go. here first. First. There you go. But it's that boring old, you know, industrial robots, which, you know, they get me going. <laughs> this is really hot that's, stuff. That's the really exciting part, Moira, the arms moving back and forth. Oh, and... man, you just, you get me. I really like it. But uh, on the other hand, now we have many different robots and we have bots. We have a whole world of bots and robots. What are we talking about there? 
Well, it's funny because I early in the book define robots. And to make it easy, uh, I just basically anything that's smart at all, I call a robot. I think that's just the easiest. So it's AI systems. Um, it's probably not quite a, like a smart toaster, but it might be in the future if, once your toaster starts talking to you. You say, um, Alexa, yeah. please play music, and then the toaster starts dancing. Yeah, right. Okay. And, you know, who I'll knows? Who knows what we're going to plug into <laughs> what here? Um, but I don't know. I mean, there's there are these very esoteric discussions about uh, the definitions of all, even artificial intelligence, which I find to be a strange term because, you know, it's neither artificial nor intelligent at this point, and we're not really even trying to do that. But anyway, that's that's the term we use. So I just call it all robots. Robots and bots. And bots. bots. And uh, all of us, no matter how old we are, there was something in your childhood where your parents rolled something into the house for the first time. Um, it could be a television set, your family's first television. It could have been the first smartphone. It could have been a VCR. It could have been, you know, just about anything. You're suggesting that maybe you'll remember this was my first encounter with a bot. Well, yes. I mean, uh, you know, there are encounters with technology go back eons, really. I mean, you know, it's we're we're the tool builders. That's what our species does. And we've we've always built these things and kind of amazed ourselves. And, you know, maybe even the first spear tips way back in the Stone Age and, you know, all these different ways that we can you know, make life more convenient um, or, you know, accomplish certain ends. And it's totally crazy now. I mean, obviously, we're, we're, we've got technologies coming in uh, not wavelets, but huge waves almost tsunamis, almost constantly now. And it was a slower pace, uh, you know, more time to adapt in the past. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you know, one of the interesting themes in, in the book, in my book, Talking to Robots, is uh, what I call the, I'll call our technophrenia, which is like schizophrenia, except it's about technology, where we both love and fear technology at the same time. And sort of like a bad boyfriend. Yeah. Well, or, or it could be a good boyfriend who has a sort of dark side. Ooh. Oh, yeah. Maybe that's the yeah. best. Boyfriend. I mean, because, you know, I mean, our smartphones and yours is probably near you right now. And mine certainly is. And, you know, when those first came out, um, we were amazed. I mean, they, were, they gave us almost like godlike powers in a way. I mean, we, we had access to all information pretty much of all time. What's near me, how yeah. to work, yeah. what hours. Yeah. I mean, and, and various ways to communicate and all the apps that did, you know, all kinds of things that we were pretty, you know, were more difficult to uh, find and amass and learn about before. And we're only now, I mean, that was 2006, I think, when the iPhone came out, um, 2007 maybe. Yeah. Um, and only now beginning to see, oh, wait a minute, what's that crick in my neck? Or, you know, the dark side of basically the Internet and how these smartphones can manipulate us. And, you know, but that's the way technology works. We have this love, you know, love, love, love it when it comes out and it provides a certain convenience. And then we find out there's some dangers. But the fear part is fascinating because at the same time, um, we're loving our phones by day. We're watching, you know, Altered Carbon and Westworld and all of these dystopic, you know, really apocalyptic, um, you know, programs on television and these films. So what is going on there? That's what I meant by the technophrenia. Like we're, we're you know, it's like our brains are working on two different tacks there. And I think it's because we know that technology is both amazing and dangerous. Interestingly enough, 
the examples that I gave with the smartphone and the television set and the, what, the VCR, whatever it is that came into your home, basically now what we're talking about is your, your near collisions with intelligence. They're definitely getting smarter and they do more things, but they're also we're, we're in a we're a lot of we're at a very interesting moment on the cusp of, of many changes. And one of them is we're, we're going through a period where the machines aren't as smart as we would like them to be. We couldn't ask our radio, you know, in the past to play a song. Right. We had to actually go turn it on. We had to find, you know, find this station and all of that. So that's an improvement. But, you know, let's face it. Alexa also is kind of stupid at times. And one of my fears is that before the machines get really smart, we got to deal with them being kind of stupid at times. And I'm, I fear that, actually, at, in the short term. I'm more, afraid my yeah. Alexa may have heard you and will be uncooperative now. Uh-oh. Yeah. <laughs> and, of course, well, I, I stopped using Alexa, by the way, because, you know, I'm a, I'm a life science reporter, as you know, and I was talking about some obscure disease, which I kept saying over and over again during a call, an interview with, with somebody. And Alexa was sitting there in the room. And while I was still on the phone on my computer, I started getting ads for the treatment for that disease. Supposedly, Alexa listens to you for marketing purposes, or I mean for um, safe, you know, trying to uh, keep the product up to date and all of that. But that was creepy. That creeped me out enough that I actually uh, unplugged it. We got to call Jeff Bezos right away. I know. I think Jeff, if you're listening. Don't do that. Don't do that. Just I, don't go down that path. I think he's busy. I don't know why. I don't know. He's probably uh, listening. Yeah. Well, building on what you said earlier about artificial intelligence, you know, and machine learning and AI, that's all technology. But now, whenever you talk about a robot or bots, I mean, maybe maybe it started with uh, in a mass way with C-3PO and R2-D2. With any of these things, we... Well, I've got to say the word anthropomorphize. Did I say it right? <laughs> Glad you said it. Yes. I mean, I actually wrote a big long question here like that anyway, so I wouldn't have to say it. But we project you, ourselves onto these beings. We we assign yeah. human qualities to them. That's a very natural thing for us to do, and uh, and it's very simple to do with all of these bots and robots. Well, we do it anyway. I mean, you know, just the way we several are. people in the book pointed out, you can practically get a paper bag and put a couple dots for eyes and a smiley face, and you already think You'll of smile it as, at it. Yeah, right. You think <laughs> of it as being you know human, but yeah, in fact. What I try to do in the book, uh, there, there are 24 robots, and I wrote, wrote about, and um, it's it's an interesting... Uh, well, scenarios for yes, robots. Scenarios they don't for all robots. exist right. there. They, you've talked to many people about, yeah. well, you know, in their world, what they could see. Well, in many it. cases, they, a version of them exists. Right. Uh, some cases, they're just being talked about. Um, but the idea there, like, say, warrior bot or sex bot or doc bot, um, teddy bear bot, um, it's trying to really incorporate all these things you're talking about. I mean, there's the actual hardware and software that's being developed. Um, I don't really focus on that as much because a lot of people write about that. Yeah. But I'm more interested in the impact of this on humans. Um, but this idea of, you know, what is AI and as, as it becomes more and more human-like, there is this te- even this tension. I mean, a lot of engineers uh, don't s- see a particular need to turn something into, like, you know, Rosie, Rosie. Yeah, the maid in Jetsons. And, yeah. and the you know, food looked awful, but it was slinging yeah. around and, you know, this stuff. Or, you know, these, these human-like robots. But that's that's part of what we're kind of wrestling with right now as humans, uh, as these technologies get more sophisticated and they move into realms 
that are more affect us emotionally or, you know, they're interacting with us even on an ethical or moral basis, which is, you know, not happening big time now, but it's definitely there. Um, you know, how do we how do we even create what a robot looks like? And, you know, should it look like a human or, you know, is it a box? I mean, there are all these and but it's all tied in with certainly popular culture. And, you know, the word robot's been around since the 20s. But, you know, even in the silent film era, there was Metropolis, which is, you know, had the woman that transforms into a machine, you know, robot like machine. And we've kind of been thinking about this mostly in fairly dystopic ways <laughs> for a long time. And the crazy thing is that we might actually be on the cusp of building some of these for real. And I think it's a good thing to do, to to consider the intelligence around us, to, to sort of draw a map of what life is like. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn. My guest today is David Ewing Duncan. You know him well as a regular biotech contributor to Tech Nation, as well as the author of such books as Experimental Man and Calendar. He's here today with Talking to Robots, Tales from Our Human-Robot Future. And I'm really glad to say that at least on this cover, you're not naked holding the book in front of you, <laughs> as you did with Experimental Man, you know. Well, yeah, we were tasteful. It was, <laughs> there was some airbrushing involved there, but yeah. <laughs> Good. I might be the only person to, you know, pose nude for a wired story. That's where that came from. Is that where and that came from? Up, it was supposed to be the cover, but actually I'm pretty happy it wasn't. Yeah. But it was in the magazine. It, yeah, it showed yeah. up a lot of places. You yeah. were a pinup guy for a while. <laughs> well, it was about, you know, I was one of the first people to ever be genetically sequenced, and this is way back in 2002. Um, but I, I don't know, it was interesting, because that story started with, I'm naked, I'm exposed. And the photographer thought, well, why don't we make him really naked? <laughs> I meant my genes, not you know, my, my DNA, not my myself. Not but, the first story to go awry. Let's yes. talk about the people you talk to about talking to robots and how this all came about. Well, that was kind of fun. I called them my human collaborators. And now we're really marking this. A human said this. Yes, a, human no, a real this. human. Yeah, yeah, you read that throughout the book. Because the book is partially fiction, but that part is not. Although I do take some real characters from the present and I extrapolate them into fictional versions of themselves in the future. I should probably say that the book is, re is reported from the present. And, it's, and I talk to real people in the present, but it actually is narrated by someone or some, it could be a robot, something living in the future who knows how things turned out. So each chapter is grounded in reality in the present, but it's actually got a fictional story wrapped around it, you know, from the future. So these these individuals, I mean, it's it's Dean Kamen, it's George Church, it's you know fil the filmmaker Tiffany Schlain, um, you know, sex therapists, and it goes on. We're and on. not talking about the sex. Is that clear? We're not going to. Well, we buy the actually, book that's the funny sex. you say that because they said that's so that would be so boring because you know the idea of the sex bots is kind of creepy and not even that interesting. They're interested in you got a chapter out of it. Yeah, well, it's called <laughs> it's called sex intimacy bot. Okay, and that's because uh, Esther Perel, the famous sex therapist, said to me I, she wouldn't even talk to me about a sex bot. That sounded just stupid. That's how she talks. Um, but into, it's about... I like her. In, yeah, you know, yeah. Yeah, no, it's great. You said we didn't want to go there. We probably We're should. We're not going there. But, but intimacy. It, it, it's about relationships and intimacy and companionship. And 
actually even the companies that sell these sex bots, which by the way they say have AI and they're fairly sophisticated and they cost, oh everybody they cost up that. to yeah twenty five thousand dollars. But anyway, if you want to spend that, but even they market their products as companionship. And one of one of the bigger companies says, "Be the first to never be alone again." And part of the programming here is. And it's all guys, pretty much. I I, I think what there actually shock. is a male. I, I, there is a what male is version, shock. but yeah, I know, isn't that shocking? <laughs> but basically, the, this you know this bot sits there and tells you how wonderful you are all the time. I could eat one of those. <laughs> I, I know. See? <laughs> oh, wait a minute. Why didn't you say that to begin with? No but, muss, no fuss, and all the messiness <laughs> of relationships. Aren't I fabulous? I'm just fabulous. Yeah. And it, it is really interesting that you say that and that she's, she has contributed there because people say, oh, you just want, you know, you get to a certain age and you just want it for companionship. The companionship leads to the companionship when it leads to intimacy is one of those human connectors, those, the, this element that makes you feel very whole. Yeah. No. And in, in the future, in the fictional story, as it plays out, um, I talked to a couple of other um, relationship therapists, Emily Morris, who actually comes from San Francisco and was on Loveline with Dr. Drew for many years, and Bryony Cole, who's a, a young, younger relationship expert from Australia. They're really amazing. You should check them both out. But um, they helped me develop in the future what we call intimacy bot. And everybody has one. It can be an app on your phone. It's basically a hologram that pops up and answers your questions. All those things you would ask a, you know, maybe a relationship therapist or a psychologist. You know, why why is my boyfriend, you know, on you know, on, in our hollow deck, you know, with other other holographic women instead of with me, you know, in the future. If you can't program that, yeah, you don't deserve a like holodeck. That. So, <laughs> and you know, it it can help encourage people to get over arguments that you know and That's good. All, all so it's funny and they you know this is what they do, right? These are the human real people today. This is what they do. They try to help people you know, have healthy relationship. And this is their robotic embodiment in the future. Yes, intimacy bot. As it would as it would play out. Yeah. Well, of course, the the first bot I love, we all grew up with teddy bears or some kind of, you know, some kind of stuffed animal. Everybody had a favorite. And, of course, our, our good buddy Kevin Kelly, the longtime founding editor of Wired. And uh, he has the teddy bot. Tell us about teddy. Well, what I did was with each each of these people I talked to, um, I asked them what kind of robot they would like to meet in the future or be afraid of meeting and why. Now, some people I sort of shaped their answer, you know, hoping that the journalist would talk about journalism. Uh, Kevin, though, because he's Kevin Kelly, I just let Kevin. him answer. I didn't know where he was going to go with it. And he just kind of blurted out, well, I'd like to see a teddy bot. And this would be – and he said, I think we'll have something like this. It'll be a cute little furry toy robot, but it won't be a toy at all. It'll be a sophisticated, possibly sentient, you know, AI system that takes care of our kids and it protects them. It teaches them. It entertains them. Um, it speaks with them. Yeah. And um, it tells their parents what they're talking about. Well, until they figure out how to hack into it to stop that. But oh, okay. And but the way that story. <laughs> it's a good ending to the story, yeah, so to speak. The way that story plays out, and this is the way most of these chapters are based on these conversations. And to sit there and talk for an hour, hour and a half with Kevin Kelly about what what might, you know, what might go right or wrong with a teddy bot with that kind of power, uh, you know, true AI brain. And we decided that it would become, first of all, 
children would love them possibly more than anyone else, like their parents or um, friends. But also we got into this whole issue of who programs it. You know, right. does, does the factory program, you know, does the manufacturer program it? Or does the government have, you know, programming a outlines? Yeah. Into the... Or do we leave it to, you know, to, to parents or But when that teddy bot says, Alexa, then time to... Pull yeah. the batteries. Yeah. <laughs> but this gets into who programs ethics and morality because, you know, this yeah. is a robot that's teaching our children. And, you know, in the future, in the story I lay out, there's all kinds of problems because uh, you get white supremacists, you know, programming Teddy to teach their kid extre- that kind of extremism. You know, as Kevin points out, there's Marin County programming them to be ultra liberal um, and on and on and on. And finally, there's a backlash because, you know, the 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 influence of these teddy bots programmed you know to teach kids ethics and morality is so crazy that these kids all end up you know being ex- even extreme versions of the parents that wanted to make them extremists what so, what a swing from the old the internet will bring us together yes so technology will divide us all well this is, of course is is an echo of what's happening unexpectedly with the internet as you say you know because that's we didn't expect that when this started that you would be having you know all these extremists online you know joining together and doing crazy things but in the end uh, they they dumb down the teddy bots so it, basically little kids want it also Gangs get a hold of them and program them. There are all kinds of things that go wrong. And you haven't gotten out of chapter one, listener. I know. Well, but that's, that's <laughs> kind David. of a theme. With, by the way, David. I'm a historian, and you know the, how these technologies have played out historically is I project that largely into the future. And we often, as I, as I was saying earlier, um, we love these technologies. We don't really understand the downsides to them. We don't think enough about them. They Something goes wrong, and then we have to fix it. And usually we do, you know, unless something really awful happens. And some of these technologies are very powerful, like, like WarriorBot. Uh, that could go really wrong. But hopefully it doesn't go too wrong before we can fix it and make it so, you know, balance it out so it's we can take advantage of the things that are good about it and protect ourselves from the things that aren't so good. Well, you mentioned Tiffany Schlein and her father, the late Leonard Schlein, who was just a terrific guy. He was an MD, but boy, he, he wrote in many different areas, one of which is art and physics. And he was showing people how you could look into the art that was developed and then later on see how we finally figured it out in physics or then go on to technology. So the the whole idea that of of trying to look into the future, extrapolate, try to be creative. It it doesn't mean you have to be right or there's a single future. The whole idea that if you can start looking there, it gives you an idea about where we might go is highly valuable today. No, that's right. And in fact, I dealt with that issue. And um, again, there have been a lot of books written about robots and AI, but they all kind of stall out in that what's going to happen. You know, because you don't know. We don't, we don't know. We don't have any the dirty idea, little really. secret of the of futurists is you can't predict the future. <laughs> Darn. <laughs> I mean, we, you know, we can see patterns from history, but I, t- I try to deal with that issue by having alternate futures. So each of these futures is different. And some of them turn out well, and some of them go right to the brink and then pull back, and others turn out really badly. 
You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn. My guest today is David Ewing Duncan. You know him well as a regular biotech contributor to Tech Nation, as well as the author of such books as Experimental Man and Calendar. He's here today with Talking to Robots, Tales from Our Human-Robot Future. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available at NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show, Daniel Kraft talks about robots today doing surgery. Frankly, you might prefer one to a human. And Gary Davis talks about what's actually in those massive thefts of online credentials. And could yours be one or more of them? Stay with us. You're listening to Tech Nation. I've been speaking with David Ewing Duncan. His book is Talking to Robots, Tales from Our Human-Robot Future. Now, of course, we're both journalists, so I had to go directly to the journalism bot as imagined or contributed to by Fast Company's Stephanie Maida and the former host of All Things Considered, Robert Siegel. And first thing it starts out with, it calls out a lie as soon as it hears it. The anti-fib app. Instant fact checker. We can use that. Well, that's so in the future, uh, we can't believe what was going on in in, in, in the, the present. past, which is our <laughs> present, uh, the people actually got away with telling lies because in the future we have the anti-fib app from from No Lie Limited. That's the name of the company that made that developed it, and which is a lie because it doesn't exist. Yes, it doesn't. Well, <laughs> okay. it's fictional. It's fictional. But it's see, you're already getting into one of the problems with the no. You know, it's easy for the No Fib app. You know, on a direct lie like you know, black is white or or whatever. Um, but when you start getting into fiction and you know, metaphor and all the these areas that um, it's going to be really difficult. We 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 could have an app probably like that even now. You know, it'd be kind of clunky, but um, you could certainly take you know literal facts and and create something like that now. But think of all the things that aren't entirely real that you know and how we speak 
and simile and you know, poems and, and you know, yeah, fictional stories. And darling, you, know, you look lovely. Lie. Well, that well <laughs> that would be bad. The the no fib app does have a a, a, a function to allow white lies. Ah. And that's exactly the example I use. You look great today, dear. <laughs> yeah. Or how do I look? Oh, you look great. You look great. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that took a while to develop in the future. And, you know, yeah, like a, actually, like a, I see that the yeah. intimacy bot and the and the anti fib, the fib bot, you know, all kind of they yeah. kind of relate yeah. to each other in context. But, but the anti fib technology in the future has a very difficult time with complex poetry like Shakespeare. Um, and in so fact, <laughs> if, if everybody's losing their jobs in the futures, they, the anti-fib company has to hire back a bunch of humans because you need humans to actually figure out, you know, what's true. What's, well, what's say poetry as opposed this is to in just your story. a lie. Yes. This is in your fictional part. Yes. And again, a lot of these are plays on what's happening now. I mean, that's, that's a gigantic problem in Facebook right now. You know, Facebook wants to have everything reduced to an algorithm and have no humans in the loop. And it's turning out that algorithms can't catch all the, you know, hate, hate speak and all these other, you know, people are very clever. So anyway, that's what happens in the future. But, when we're talking about journalists, the key thing is not about, well, we're out there to tell the truth. The key thing that we have with the people that read us or listen to us or consume us, whatever, however we're delivering our media, uh, is trust. They, they are listening because they trust you. And trust, in general, is a problem for the journalism bot. Yeah, in fact... Um you know, in the chapter, and I think in in general, uh, trust is different than not lying. <laughs> and you know, you and in fact, you know, as I suggest, unless it's a really concrete sort of you know black or white, um, it's some a lot of a lot of what we say and do in journalism, despite the old fashioned idea of being objective, is is open to interpretation. And it really does come down to trust. And um, I, in, in that particular chapter, uh, I actually go back in time a little bit to a time, um, you know, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, when there was a lot of trust in journalism. In fact, I was one. Of, it's weird because I think it's what about where Congress, maybe slightly above Congress, you know, the trust of journalists. Um, but there was a time when you had the three networks on TV. And, you know, correspondents or anchors like Walter Cronkite. Walter Cronkite was the most trusted person in the United States for if year If Walter year. Cronkite yeah. said it, it was true. Yep. And His sister it. said it. Yeah, forget it. Imprimatur. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, but he would end his newscasts with, and that's the way it is. And people thought that is the way it is. And in and, fact, yeah. you could fact check him up and down. And if there was a problem, he'd correct it the next day. He'd correct. But of course, you had to wait to the next day. Everything yeah. was slower in context. Yeah. Um, and yet we get to today. And if you don't like human journalists, yeah. try bot journalists. Let's talk about heliograph. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, they have all these cute little names. Um, most major. Uh, this was news to me, by the way. Speaking of news, uh, that the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the 
Washington Post, they all use AI now much more than I realized and earlier than I thought. It, it began in 2016 uh, with sports scores around the Rio Olympics and then with the election that year where very simple like so-and-so won, you know, such-and-such -such race and a little color written around it. They just programmed a bunch of words that could be fit into formulaic sentences. And so AI actually wrote a lot of those brief sports stories. And then they did the same thing with the election, with, you know, some you know, district in California, so-and-so won, and, you know, here's a few colorful things about that. Um, and they, you know, this they is... they got a, the facts straight, the numbers, and they assembled it into sentences. Yeah, yeah. I guess it's still the truth. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, and I, I think what you're getting is a slow creep, you know, of removing humans and almost every industry, but journalism, uh, certainly in those simpler stories. And, you know, a lot of a lot of humans have lost their jobs, had lost their jobs already with, you know, statistical analysis, like almost all the statistics in sports are, uh, you know, they used to be assembled by actual humans. Well, the question is, say, if you're looking at the masthead of a magazine or a newspaper, um, how how high up will that uh, creep go? <laughs> Susie, you know, AI, Joe, yeah. right, and... R2-D2, like, uh, yeah. CP3O, yeah, CP3O. editor-in-chief. Yeah, that's right. right. Um, and this is something that Stephanie Mehta from Fast Company, um, who's been my editor, was my editor at Fortune, and she's an amazing journalist uh, and editor. Uh, that's what she was wondering, you know. She thinks it will stop at a certain point, you know, because she can't imagine, and I don't think anybody can imagine um, a robot or an AI system doing, like, say, what, as she mentioned, Michael Lewis does, or the really great writers we have out there. Explain what Michael Lewis does. Yeah, well, I mean, he's listeners. written, he wrote Liar's Poker, and um, originally was the book, and, um, you know, many, many other um, amazing books, uh, mostly about Wall Street. Who's a, um, but he was a colleague of mine at the Condé Nast Portfolio, which was a business magazine. Um, but a very creative guy. And he finds obscure kind of stories, and um, I'm trying to. What, 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 I can't remember the name of the movie where the Big Short. Yeah, the Big Short. That was it. And he wrote a piece, in fact, for Portfolio for our magazine, that that that, that movie was developed out of. But anyway, it's a very oddball kind of sideways look at what everybody, all the other, the data that everybody else is looking at, and the trends. And he saw something really different. And how would you ever be able to program? You have to you have AI. to know how to do it to program the computer to do it, and I keep reminding yeah. people about that in the AI space. So you've been running around, you've been talking to a whole bunch of people, uh, and there's a bunch of robots in here, a bunch of bots, twenty four of them, as you say. What is the one that has drawn the most interest, or a couple that have drawn the most interest? Well, Sexbot is Dang. always there. I the mean, one we didn't talk about. Yeah, I mean, I'm a lot claiming. of interviewers say right before we start, they go, well, you know, I don't know if we're going to talk about the sex bot, but they do. They just can't help themselves. I don't know. Um, but uh, again, that that goes in a direction you don't think it does. It, it actually goes towards some fairly, fairly interesting and serious stuff about relationships and intimacy. Because this is about something really important to us. It's love and relationships and how we feel about ourselves and how we feel about each other. And that's not just in the sex spot chapter. That, that's a big theme in the book because, you know, 
I, I asked, just throw the question out there, I guess, like a good journalist. Um, how far do we want to go with that? You know, and how, how willing are we to have machines sort of take over, like like raising our kids? Or as you get later in the book, there's Godbot, and it's not like a religious god, but it's it's Brian Greene, the physicist, and that's the robot he wants, is a robot that can tell him how the universe works, because he's a theoretical physicist. Would it be a benevolent robot? Because we would... I don't know. It's that thing where we would we would be like gnats buzzing in its ear, you know, if, if it knew everything in the universe. And he's thinking of it as a teacher that could teach him as a physicist. But I don't know. I mean, it could go any number of ways. <laughs> <laughs> Which is what your book does. It goes any number of ways. David, such a pleasure. Please come back. See us anytime. And, uh, and good luck with the book. Thank you, Maura. I really appreciate it. My guest today is David Ewing Duncan. His book is Talking to Robots, Tales from Our Human Robot Future. It's published by Dutton. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. I remembered that Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft had done some surgery in his long career. So I asked him, do you think that robotics and artificial intelligence will replace you? Well, I've been a flight surgeon, which is a term uh, when I served in the Air National Guard for the sort of doctor that takes care of, let's say, pilots, though we weren't operating in the sky. So to be clear, I trained in internal medicine, pediatrics, hematology, oncology, did some sort of bone marrow transplantation, but that's not full-on surgery. But if we think about this new era of digital surgery, even robotic and AI elements of surgery, it's not going to replace the surgeon, but it's going to increasingly augment them and assist them. And that starts at the beginning. How do you train, uh, let's say, a surgeon? There's over 5 million individuals who are estimated to potentially die every year from lack of access to surgical care. It might be as simple as an appendectomy that's needed for appendicitis or a, a fracture that's not set properly and leads to infection or, and morbidity and mortality. So now we can start to use some of these new tools to train medical providers, not even full-on surgeons, to, to do what a specialized surgeon might do here in, in the United States. Let's start with simulation and training. We're now in an era of low-cost augmented and virtual reality. You can put your smartphone in a Google Cardboard device and now watch a surgery that's been recorded or even streamed in real time from the operating room. As my friend Dr. Shafi Ahmed pioneered three years ago, I was in the OR, 5,000 medical students were watching that surgery. They can learn from master surgeons. We're seeing the ability to put on a VR headset like an Oculus and now practice a surgery. Just like pilots will train uh, in a simulator, we can simulate that sort of training. Uh, and we're now starting in this world to even do mentoring. If I'm uh, a new, newly trained surgeon in, uh, let's say, rural Rwanda, and I have a patient I've never, with a condition I've never seen before, I might call and help from a surgeon in, in London or Cairo or San Francisco. They could be watching through my, my iPad or my Google Glass and guiding me through a procedure. What's exciting, I think, is that these all are going to converge when we can start to record surgeries, which is doable to now, not just upload them to YouTube, but to platforms that can start to analyze, let's say, that laparoscopic surgery to take out that gallbladder, start to understand what are the dangerous parts of the procedure, where do surgeons often get in trouble. And now with AI machine learning, identify for the surgeon that that's the, the vein you don't want to cut, or there's the... There's the um, the, the, the part of the anatomy you really want to have to go after and dissect and give you almost a, a Waze or a Google Maps for surgery. So we're going to see this kind of super convergence of learning, data, and guidance moving forward. As I understand it, we've already started down this path of autonomous surgery. Uh, I had a friend recently who had cataract surgery. It 
the doctor didn't do it. Exactly. You wouldn't want the doctor <laughs> to do it. Punched in a few numbers, but the doctor didn't do it. Yeah. Now with, you know, we, cor- we do corneal mapping. It estimates how do you sort of shave the cornea to best optimize your vision. And the ophthalmologist presses the button and the laser goes zap. That's an example of sort of, you know, autonomous surgery in a sense. Uh, we're going... Some of you might have seen the movie Prometheus, where the uh, woman has the alien inside and the robotic surgeon does the entire autonomous surgery uh, for her. Uh, It's quite dramatic. I think we're still a bit farther away from truly autonomous surgery, let's say inside the body beyond ophthalmology. But where it's starting to occur is, for example, um, work published years ago out of uh, DC Children's Hospital, that robots could be trained to sew uh, parts of the colon together something called an anastomosis, very common element. And it can do it theoretically better than surgeons. That's a part of a surgery. So you can imagine the sort of blend where the surgeon's in there and says, here's the line, and it, the, the little robotic surgeon draws and, and does the completed task. So sort of this blending of, as we say in artificial intelligence, I like to think of it as intelligence augmentation. It's going to be just like we have um, the idea of autonomous cars helping out with our, our driving. Uh, from driver assist, we're going to move to surgeon assist, and it's going to be this kind of combination that's going to really transform intervention. It's pretty clear that whenever technology comes, it kind of just creeps in. The fingers, you know, keep coming in, and eventually it gets to wherever it's right. It's not like, oh, we can't solve that technically, so much as this is the right balance. It's a balance, and it's meeting the need. You know, in certain parts of the world, again, very few surgeons now Technologies like 5G are rolling out. 5G is about 100 times the speed of our 4G networks. And it's been demonstrated in early 2019, first on an animal model that a surgeon from several thousand miles away could operate initially on a pig. And then literally a month later, the first 5G-based surgery was done uh, 6,000 miles apart in, in China. And China has a dearth of, you know, a shortage of surgeons in most parts of the country. So we're literally going to see an era where surgeons might be home in their pajamas on their tablet or a little robotic control device doing a surgery across the planet and on a 5G network, which is now so fast with very little latency, just like kids can play video games in real time in Xboxes around the world, that you can actually operate in real time as well. Well, that's a good question. Do I want the surgery from somebody on a 5G network thousands of miles away, or do I want something that's autonomous? And Maybe there's something inside me that's different than they expect. Well, in this world of digital surgery, it's going to become a blend. Uh, we're not going to see the full-on uh, autonomous surgery, and you probably don't want that yet. Just like you still want the pilot in the cockpit of your plane flying across the country, uh, you often can see that the entire, from takeoff to landing, can be done with the autopilot, uh, but we still want the pilots there uh, for a case of emergency. I think that's going to be so bit of a model. It's health care. It's health care. <laughs> we need a person to care. <laughs> I think that might and, and the care is important. You know, you, you're a surgeon. You want to be able to look them in the eye, you, uh, that human touch element. Uh, and the ability for some of these technologies to, again, augment the intervention will maybe give us some more time for that, that care kind of the equation. We do have a, a challenge. This is a more global issue about physician burnout. Uh, often it's called moral injury, where you know physicians and healthcare givers are not able to do the part of the care they train to do. They're stuck you know, doing billing and filling out electronic medical records. So in some ways, whether it's a robot or an AI chatbot, it's going to sort of augment our care and hopefully bring back the core components that many folks brought them into medical professions to start with. Daniel, thanks for coming in. Thank you, Moira. 
Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft is the founder and chair of Exponential Medicine. The Exponential Medicine Conference 2019 is scheduled for early November at the Hotel Coronado in San Diego. More information is available at exponentialmedicine.com. We often hear about data breaches and the theft of online data. I learned that many are combined into massive credential dumps for sale on the Internet. I asked Tech Nation contributor Gary Davis, the chief consumer security evangelist at McAfee, to tell us about them. Of course, when I first asked, there were two massive credential dumps out. By the time he got here... There were five. <laughs> we are up to five. And let me make sure I get the numbers right. They're called collections, collections one through five. And they have an estimated 845 gigabytes of data or 25 billion email password combinations. That is a lot of username password combinations. If I'm a just a regular Joe consumer, that would worry me because that tells me that, that no matter what account I may have used, at some point, it's been compromised. And this is such an important inflection point for us in this industry because we're always talking about you know, password hygiene, changing your passwords, making sure you're using complex passwords. But this, above all else, should, should really alert people to the importance of going in and changing their passwords. Because they could have your really complex password and use it. <laughs> people think they're so clever. Oh, I got this really good password. And actually, there's there's this great website called Have I Been Pwned? That's have I, the you know, letter I, been P-W-N-E-D.com, have I been pwned.com. And it'll basically, you can put your password in there, and it'll tell you how many times that password is in the database. So if you're using the most popular password, one two three four five six, um, you probably see how many times people use that and why it's probably not a good idea to use that password. But it is an extremely great resource for consumers. I to... thought I was so clever. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we all think we're clever until we realize that, oh, my goodness, uh, that, that, that password has been used over and over and over again. And it's funny because, you know, when collection one, collection two hit, it was within a week where I got my first scam email, my first phishing email. And it was, oh, we got this credentials. And I could tell it was from MySpace. And, you know, how long ago has anybody used MySpace, right? <laughs> yeah, really. There will be people who will look at that and say, oh, my goodness, they, they got that, that really important password. And they must have this information. So I better go pay this, figure out how Bitcoin works and go pay this, this off. Well, I did get an email that was from a very large company. And it looked all official. And it said, you were password has been compromised and here is your password. Please log in here and update your password. You didn't do that, did you? <laughs> no, that. I didn't. <laughs> but I thought, how many of these emails went out and yeah. how many people actually updated their password? You know, and it's like, which now they knew what your password was. Oh, yeah. You yeah, the new one. So uh, you could feel all secure, but... Oh, yeah, but they, and that's just it. They, they know the frailty of being human. And they know that people say, oh, my goodness, it's, you know, they've used the, the logo. They've used good English. Obviously, I've, I use this company for whatever. So, yeah, it must be legitimate. And, you know, the, the one I love, and it's a little bit of a tangent, but when they said, oh, by the way, we, your credit card starting in these four digits has been compromised. Log in here to go fix it. Well, 
every credit card, every Visa starts with the first four, every MasterCard starts. <laughs> so people see that, oh, they must have it because it's the first four. And they don't realize that every Visa is the same. Every MasterCard every, is the same. Every, every American, American Express, Express is the same. <laughs> <laughs> and they don't, oh, but they must have it because they got the first four digits. Oh. That's right. When you start to type it and knows which one it is. Exactly. because of the first four digits. Exactly. I get yeah. it. Now, Collection 1, Collection 2, Collection 3, are they from presumably different sources or different places? Different yeah. people own them, if you will? They did analysis, and apparently just for Collection 1 and Collection 2, there was over 2,000 sources of breached data. You know, uh, things like Yahoo, LinkedIn, Dropbox. It's been, it's been collected. Collected over the years, yes. And this, when you think about the MySpace, that was breached years ago, but so few people use it nowadays. It didn't really shock the system. But when you have something as massive as Yahoo or some of these really large breaches and, and they're more current, that's where you get a little bit more alarm because of the, the, the human nature to use the same password in multiple accounts. And the bad guys know this. And actually one of the, the things that these collections are used for is called credential stuffing. You know, think about all the sites you go to today which have some sort of credentials, right, username, password. So what they'll do is they'll know that here are the top 10 you know, places you would likely go. And they just throw these sets of credentials out to see if any of them work. And if they do, then they're in and then they'll poke around to see, well, what can I get? Can I get your address? Is there credit card information? Is there other information that this credential set allowed me to access so I could perhaps go do more damage? Exactly. There's a lot of information about you. There's a profile. There's all kinds of things where you mail all this stuff that if you're buying things, you know, so there's a lot more information if you put it all together into a bigger information profile. Yeah, we're we're, and I'll talk more about this in in future sessions, but we are building these massive data lakes and this it's really this this rich resource about us. We, We look at the convenience of all this wonderful stuff, you know, stuff like location tracking for GPS and, you know, being able to go to our, our banking accounts easily. But the, the, the amount of data you're collecting through all these different resources and services is just immense, just immense. Now, as I understand it, these collections are out on the dark web. <laughs> like, do you not turn your computer on? You need it dark? <laughs> and, the, and you can buy them for money. Oh, yeah, yeah. In fact, when they first put Collection 1 and Collection 2 out, it was for a ridiculously low price. And I forgot what the number was. It was like point zero 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 four five cents per record. But then they figured, well, let's just go ahead and make Collection 1 and Collection 2 free just to show what kind of uh, credential sets we have and then charge for Collections 2 through 5. So they're actually Collection 1 and Collection 2 are now, at least last I checked, they were still free on the dark web and, and there could have been a momentary sale. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's just, it's just funny because it, it, these guys are in it like any other, they're out to make money and you have to prove that you have the goods, right? If you just say, well, I have this massive set of you know credit cards or social security numbers or whatever, if you can't validate that it's a known good list, then it, it really doesn't have any value to people who would want to, to buy that list. So I think that the intent for collection and collection to you to give legitimacy, okay. yeah, to give legitimacy to the list to, that they had a good list and then they could sell other lists for some real money. And collection one and collection two have been kind of worked over. Oh, yeah. actually, oh, yeah. And so a number of people would have changed their password. So you got to go on to new collections yeah. well, to make them valuable. I hope that, <laughs> that, that people heard about Collection 1 and Collection 2 and they took it upon themselves to go at least explore this a little bit to see if maybe they should go change their password. But I, I fear that not enough people do it. And the reason I fear that is because these things still work. 
you know, if if everybody heard about this and went in and changed their passwords and and did that good password hygiene, you know, the the, the cyber criminal networks would, would diminish. But we're not seeing that. We're continuing to see it's a growth industry because people have poor habits. They 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 hear about this stuff and they hear about how devastating it can be. But every time they log into a new place, they put the same password down. Yeah, it's the same password over and over again, and the bad guys know it. The bad guys know well if they're using this email username or username an email for I'm sorry, username and password for their social media account, they're probably using it for the bank as well. So let's see if we can figure out which bank they're using and see if we can use these credentials. Okay, finally, what's the dark web? The dark web, it, it, believe it or not, the dark web is almost equal in size to the web as we know it. But it's a part of the internet that's not indexed by your search engine. So you can't go into something like Google and search for a certain instance of something that exists in the dark web. You have to have a special set of tools in order to access it. But the information that's there is almost as rich and as, as full as the internet as we know it today. It's, it's almost similar in size to the internet. It's that big. How can they escape Google? The rest well, of us are all here. You can't crawl. <laughs> it. They, they make it. These are non-crawlable sites. So you can't put, I think it's called a spider, which would crawl your web. And well, I, I think I have it. I try to tell people that Google can't listen to the audio of the shows as they're posted out there. You'd have to make it a transcript and then they can transcribe the text. They can crawl the text. They, yeah, can, they can crawl the text. And they can and index the text and you can search the, on it. That's right. Yeah. So the data that's out there is not in the form that well, Google would normally crawl. It's in the form, but it's, it's stored in locations which Google doesn't have access to. Because this is still you know, machine-readable information. The credential sets, for example, are, are the credential sets. Now, whether or not a password has been what's called hashed or encrypted, is you know varies depending on a number of circumstances, but the data is could be indexed, but they they store it in locations which aren't crawlable or accessible by the the the, the search engines and things like that. How do you do that? How do you get one of those? Oh, that takes a little bit of work. Um, I probably didn't talk about that. You don't want everybody <laughs> to know how to do well, it. Well, it's okay. just, you don't want people because you, you you don't want to incent people to do things that would be malicious, right? And it's also like the, the, the ways you access this. For example, there's there's ways you want to access that you don't want your ISP to know you're doing it. You, you want to kind of fly under the radar. Your internet service provider? Yeah, you know, I'm sorry, your internet service provider is correct. But so there's there's ways you access it that you, you don't want to be known that you're doing that and accessing it. So again, it, it's, it's a tricky thing that we, we really don't like to talk about just because we don't want to give but just know it's there. It's there, and it's, it's big, <laughs> for sure. Well, Gary, you're a lot of fun, but you're also kind of scary sometimes. <laughs> I'll give you that. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. I, I love coming here. I appreciate the time. Tech Nation regular contributor Gary Davis is the chief consumer security evangelist at McAfee. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. 
Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor.